welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Shimon Basar, it's great to have you on Table Talk. Um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you um, in the middle of a COVID lockdown, but between deepest Herefordshire in the UK and Dubai. Shimon is a writer, editor, and curator, um, and we're here to talk about his latest project called The Extreme Self, The Age of You. Shimon, this comes, in a sense, as a follow-on to your last big book, um, which talked about the extreme present. Can you give me, it was called The Age of Earthquakes. You did it with um, Hans Ulrich Obrist and with Douglas Coupland. Um, Can you give me a sense of what that book was about before we move into this new one? Sure thing, Tari. It's great to be talking to you. and uh, also from such dissimilar places, although maybe during the corona scene, there's no such thing as here or there anymore. We're either both here or both there at the same time. Um, So the age of earthquakes came out of um, our shared interest in the Canadian theorist, media theorist, Marshall McLuhan. Um, Some of your listeners may have heard of him, may not have heard of him, but McLuhan became very famous in the late 60s, particularly after a book came out um, bearing his name and the name of two other people, Jerome Agel and Quentin Fiore. And that book was called The Medium is the Massage. It went on to sell a a million copies and be one of the textbooks of the countercultural revolution in the late 60s in North America. Um, But in this book, uh, McLuhan's theories uh, about uh, what he called electric media, so radio, television, advertising, magazines, um, were sort of collided with this fantastic uh, visual uh, journey uh, that was also borrowed from all these different forms of electric media and uh, was this kind of thrilling ride through all the ways in which uh, the world was changing through these new technologies. Um, but as McLuhan famously said, um, uh, every media is an extension of man or woman. And that these extensions or these tools, we make tools and the tools remake us. Uh, now, the fascinating thing about McLuhan is that it's as though he, he saw the future coming, but because he died in 1980, he never got to really live in the digital world that we're now uh, immersed in. And so we asked uh, ourselves the question, what would McLuhan make of the world today? Um, and uh, and so we then uh, worked with a graphic designer called Wayne Daly. We then uh, wrote a text which uh, set about to take 
those sort of conceptual probes that McLuhan had set up in the in the 60s and update them to the uh, to the to the 21st century. Um, we then crowdsourced images from 35 different visual artists all around the world. Uh, and this became a, a kind of quick fire paperback also published by Penguin who had published The Medium is the Massage back in 67. And, you know, this became uh, a sort of manifesto, you could say, for uh, this, these forms of radical change that were happening to the world, but mainly through the atomization of time. And so this is uh, what we mean by the extreme present. And the extreme present is what happens when there's a sense that the future doesn't uh, exist anymore as something distant ahead of you, but instead you're uh, inhabiting it. Um, so you could, take, uh, you could take any number of scientific or technological discoveries from the last 15 odd years, uh, they would not, uh, they would not seem uh, out of place in science fiction from the 20th century. Uh, and then at the same time, there's a sense in which the past uh, is not something that you have to remember because you upload it. You upload it to hard drive, uh, you upload it to the cloud. So what you're left with is this very thin layer of time experience, which is the extreme present. And um, I would just add here that uh, neurologists um, uh, agree very little about the neurology, the brains, um, the way in which the brain processes time. The one thing that they do agree on is that the brain's understanding of the present is somewhere between 2 and 2.5 seconds. Now, that's very, very interesting because if you uh, hold down your Instagram, Facebook, Twitter feed from the top of the screen and wait for it to, to, to load, it's around the same amount of time. So the extreme present is this extreme presentness that we are inhabiting. Uh, and then the book, as I say, went on to look at all the different kind of consequences of that, um, you know, from politics to, um, to our inner lives and our kind of also, also mystical and, and spiritual relationship to each other. That, in far greater depth of um, the extreme present, you describe, you describe McLuhan's line that we make the tools and then the tools remake us. Mm -hmm. um, that personal experience of, um, of where we are today, this thin mm -hmm. layer of the present that you describe mm -hmm. us in, um, it changes how we understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and Palia's project, of course, is to try and understand how opinions are made, where mm -hmm. opinions come from, um, how they're built, how they relate to our own sense of self. Mm -hmm. um, your latest project, The Extreme Self, mm -hmm. talks to this, this issue of the individual um, surrounded by these tools which are remaking them. Can you give me a quick spin around this idea of the extreme self? Of course. Well, the Age of Earthquakes came out in 2015. Um, we were then invited uh, to conceive of a new project, a new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto, uh, and the invitation came in early 2017. At that point, 
the three of us, uh, and I'm sure a large uh, proportion of the planet, I think was still in a kind of PTSD, a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, over the various events that had unfolded in 2016. Uh, of course, uh, there was Brexit, there was um, the uh, the black, what you could say was the kind of black swan event of the US election in November 2016. But we would go right back to actually January the 10th, which is when David Bowie died. Um, and, you know, very, we very seriously contend that we're now somehow living in the, in the world uh, that uh, has been left behind now that Bowie has gone. And one of the other things that happened in 2016, which I think we only came to learn a couple of years later, particularly I think when uh, the Netflix documentary Great Hack came out, was the role that data uh, and the manipulation of data um, played in all in these events that now retroactively seem like uh, the kind of reformatting of, of history and of the future. And and so I think what the extreme self is, is our attempt to search for the question of what has happened to the individual, to the self, but also to the crowd and the collective when uh, data uh, has um, effectively become the most uh, valuable resource in the world. Um, you know, we talk about the 20th century being uh, the century of fossil capitalism. Well, of course, we're now into the age of surveillance capitalism, to use Shoshana Zuboff's term, computational capitalism, data capitalism. In fossil capitalism, we would go and drill the seas, uh, drill the ground. We would frack the earth effectively uh, to for it to release its petrocarbon or um, methane uh, uh, bounty for us. Um, in the age of surveillance and data capitalism, we are the ones who are being fracked. And so there, I think there's a very, what's happened since 2016 is a very profound uh, reorientation, I think. Uh, it's what I call a neo-Copernican uh, move. Uh, if Copernicus was the moment where we were able to, uh, as, a, as a species, able to displace ourselves from the center of uh, an imagining of the cosmos to uh, uh, you know, merely being one planet amongst the kind of infinity uh, of the universe, I think what's happened since 2016, effectively, uh, is that we are now uh, the centers of each of our universes, and um, and and this is very uh, this has been done very very strategically, uh, and this uh, is the kind of uh, is the uh, is the engineering of uh, this new economy, but of course the new economy also produces all kinds of new uh, effects and epi, epi effects. Uh, again, in terms of how uh, power works, so the, looking at it at the macro scale, but then uh, down to the kind of nano scale about how we perceive ourselves uh, in relation to others or in relation to ourselves. And so the book uh, over the course of 13 chapters moves from 
uh, from these different scales, from the very, very small to the very, very large, to look at, at what has become to the individual now that our relationship to, to data and data's relationship to us, I think has lost any possible semblance of, of innocence. I think before 2016, we, we, were, we were implicated in all of these dynamics, but we certainly didn't know about how deeply mm, uh, kind of complicit we were uh, and also what the kind of broad uh, kind of, and broad ranging effects and profound changes that uh, that they were uh, that they were you know kind of wreaking upon us. I'm I'm particularly fascinated mm-hmm. by um, by what this what this does to our sense of selves. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the the economic relationships that you're describing, um, mm-hmm. I think, are are there for all of us to see. Um, mm-hmm. There's a huge backlash as this became conscious, as we became conscious of. Um, but being the product ourselves, um, mm-hmm. or being the resource, being the natural resource, yeah. the backlash has begun, and the backlash began hard. Um, mm-hmm. But um, there's been, I mean, historically for the last twenty years or so, there's been shockingly little smart critique of what technology does to our sense of society, to our sense of selves. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, as I sat inside tech journalism or peripheral to tech journalism, it was for fifteen years we've had PR. We've had brilliant new companies changing the world. We've had very little critique of what they do to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but having looked at this like you um, over the last 15, 15 years or so, very much from a media perspective, certain things you, you, we've seen coming. Um, one of the things which struck, has struck me for a while now is that um, we don't, and I know you and I agree on this, we don't mm-hmm. really see ourselves as narratives anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of this in the context of journalism. Old days, an article was written behind closed doors, edited behind closed doors, and published in a newspaper to be seen the next day. Um, the the live blog was sort of the unstitching of that article. You could see it being made. You could see all the data points thrown up um, in, a, in, in, in a in a chronology without it being a narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think with the mass proliferation of information, um, we think of news and uh, we think of we think of news we think of the, of the media as a series of data points rather than as a narrative but mm-hmm. i think you're taking your, your your idea is that this goes further isn't it is that the individual therefore stops thinking of himself or herself as a narrative what is that is that is that right and what is replaced what replaces that sense of narrative no absolutely i mean the the at the beginning of um the age of earthquakes um starts with the question, have you maybe noticed that our lives are no longer feeling like stories? Our lives are becoming uh, a lineup of tasks. Our sense of time is beginning to shrink. And, you know, in that book, we we came up with a number of neologisms. Denarration was one of these. So the sense that your life no longer feels like like a story. And, um, and I think this is certainly one of the consequences of this kind of radical atomization of time, uh, because uh, in the in the new book we say, well, uh, the past either feels ten minutes or ten years ago, um, and I think this is one one of many ways in which, you know, I think 
every aspect of our uh, of our lives and our reality have been stretched apart to these extremes. Um, so, uh, and and this means that the you know the center has been kind of hollowed out effectively. Um, and uh, I mean that has a lot to do with, of course, with just the sheer amount of uh, of information intake. You know, if if you think about the number of images that somebody from the 16th century would have taken in from dusk till dawn to somebody in 2020, um, the number of kind of visual, oral, sensory stimuli, um, but also kind of just the sort of cacophony, the kind of asteroid cacophony of, uh, of, of um, to, to use your words, opinions, counter opinions. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, Almost incom incomprehensible, and and uh, this has, I think, a um, uh, a kind of warping effect, of course, on uh, on time, but also of uh, and of narrativity. Um, but you know, th this also, I think, is nestled in other larger scale um, uh, you know, forces. So the idea of a job for life. Um, and, and here, I think, you know, we, we always need to look at Japan as a kind of sociological uh, canary in the, in the coal mine uh, for where the rest of us will be going. You know, the, the whole uh, idea that Japanese society, uh, it's kind of a mythical sense of uh, orderedness, of uh, like very carefully striated generational uh, performativity, you know, was based around this idea that you would enter into a company and you would have a job for life. That job would then give you uh, a secure uh, retirement uh, and uh, and so on and, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, I think now uh, the idea of a job for life uh, is nothing more than a, a kind of uh, you know, cruel joke from the past. Uh, we would all expect to be doing countless number of things. We'd probably all expect to have to re-educate ourselves to retool our imagination and our knowledge every few years. Um, so, you know, uh, there. I think there are many ways in which this sense of denarration happens, both from the inside and the outside. Um, and you know, I think part of this are. Uh, partly consequences of, of these kind of technological takeover that happens internally. Um, but there are also consequences, I think, of much larger forces, uh, which are, you know, political and economic, uh, and to do with kind of ec economic macro systems that, you know, uh, that inform the kind of waves of waves of history. If, if we're not narratives, if we can't tell stories about ourselves, because we've got, on the one hand, um, no clear models anymore because mm -hmm. the changes yeah. so fast, um, and because we're just overloaded by information surplus. Wh what else do we become? What do we? What are we to ourselves? Are we performances for ourselves? In, 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 in Instagram generation would say we are. Mm -hmm. um, does that does that make sense to you? Are we? Do you think? Do you think of us as as, as external performances? Are we constantly gesturing to our to 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 who we are? Um, are we yeah, I mean, sorry, go on. No, I mean, I, I think we've, we've always, I mean, we've always been 
performative, I think. Um, but the question is, you know, who have we performed to uh, and why? And I think, th you know, those, um, that metric changes through time. Um, we now, uh, many of us now perform on platforms that are highly engineered by some of the world's most gifted engineers. So one of the things I've been thinking about is that how, you know, in the medieval time, the most gifted engineers and gifted mathematicians would have been building something like Shark, uh, you know, uh, these kind of um, symbolic um, machines for, in order to praise... Shark Cathedral. Shark Cathedral, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but now, you know, our brightest minds are there to uh, engineer code that ultimately engineers our emotions. And so I think one of the things that we are dealing with in, in the new book is the idea that, um, you know, you may think that the feeling that you're feeling is happening because of you. But in reality, that's actually a performance that's being scripted by some very clever set of engineers, either in Silicon Valley or in Shenzhen or wherever. And, you know, and so, um, you know, I think the, the question of, of performance is very, very important because performance is how, I mean, performance is how we um, render ourselves present to one another, to the world, to an imagined audience, um, but also to ourselves. Um, and, but, I mean, not to be, you know, too kind of conspiratorial about it, because I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I just think it's, it's just blatant facts that um, there's a, we're made, uh, we're being told that the nature of authenticity, of our authentic self, um, looks and feels like this, but in fact, it's anything but authentic, right? So, I mean, it, it's highly engineered. And so, um, but what I find interesting is even though, you know, many of us now know that to be the case, I don't see, you know, a, a kind of mass um, exodus from from these platforms. Um, Can I just check that I know what you mean? You, you, you mean that the that the polished, perfect image of somebody on Instagram that they pretend that they that they project on Instagram? We know it's rubbish. Is that is that what you mean? But we're but we've we've begun to fall for it. We continue to we continue to be engaged in this production despite knowing that it's not true. Is that what you mean? Yes, but also that we know that our, you know, every bit of uh, information that we that we share is, you know, is being put to other other uses. Um, you know, first and foremost is to sell us stuff, but also uh, much, you know, in a much deeper sense to to alter the the course of history, right? And and to do it in a way that is not. Uh, is not authentic uh, to, let's say, what you signed up for in the first place. Um, but uh, nevertheless, 
the the kind of addictive affirmative um, you know sensations and affirmation that, that that it gives you is still too high of a price it seems to me for most people and I include myself here um, to, to to give up you know I'm I'm fascinated by your your beautiful. Uh, image of Chartres Cathedral. So you have mm -hmm. the greatest minds and architects and designers and engineers of the day building mm -hmm. a projection of meaning mm -hmm. um, decided from on high. A mm -hmm. series of narratives, if you want, which were clearly established, came out of one book mm -hmm. um, and which were then um, built up into this giant sort of projection of, yeah, projection of truths, projection of meanings mm -hmm. that people would go to worship at and sort of define their lives by. Mm -hmm. What you've described is the equivalent great engineers, designers, architects, and the rest building mm -hmm. platforms on which we write down our own emotions, on which we perform ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, that's a massive shift and a very beautiful one on the one hand, insofar as mm -hmm. it allows everyone a voice. Mm -hmm. um, it allows everyone a truth to perform rather mm -hmm. than having to take it from the archbishop or the cardinal. Um, but it does very, very strange things to our... Um, I, I suppose our sense of our sense of collective self, our sense of community, mm -hmm, precisely mm -hmm. because there are so many different divergent narratives, um, mm -hmm. and um, we find it very difficult. Therefore, not only to situate ourselves as uh, as individuals uh, as narratives, because those narratives are fractured, but also as groups, as societies. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I want to ask you here is, if um, new tech changes how we think of ourselves as individuals, mm -hmm. it also changes. It also changes the crowd. So, what does what does the wh where do you think the crowd is today? What do you think technology has done to the crowd? Mm -hmm. Yeah, on on that, I think uh, let me just I want to read you uh, a little bit um, from the from the new book that I, I think speaks to this. Um, uh, also, in relation to uh, uh, the the gap between Chartres Cathedral and today. So, we write historically speaking. Even during the most divisive times, people agreed on certain basic common truths, such as the sun is in the sky or fish swim in the sea. Our senses shaped this kind of consensus. There are people today who think school shootings are hoaxes. There are people who won't vaccinate their children. The breakdown of consensus-based reality is perhaps one of the most dangerous threats there has ever been to shared human experience. Is there any turning back? Um, so, you know, I've been, I, I thought of that um, because obviously the backdrop, I think, to, the, to our conversation today is about the question of, of opinions, uh, how opinions get formed, where they get formed, uh, and what the consequences of that uh, are. Um, but I think, the question then of the individual versus the crowd, uh, you know, has to be looked at, I think, in terms of, 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 of this uh, kind of evolution into, a, you know, a total, um, I think, uh, like balkanization of, of, of consensus. Because consensus, uh, you know, are, allows surely for uh, the, uh, the building blocks of something that you might begin to call uh, the truth. Now, if, if there is no consensus anymore, uh, if, if 
I decide that the truth is simply what I choose to believe uh, and reverse engineer from that, um, then, you know, then, uh, then I, I, the question, I mean, I, you simply don't have any, any kind of truth that bears any kind of resemblance, I think, to what we've considered it to have been for thousands of years. Why has that organization take place, taken place? It has, well, it's, I think it's taken place um, because of uh, this kind of um, radical, almost infinite atomization of, uh, uh, of information inputs that now, you know, uh, is again engineered through these platforms through the feeds, um, of which, you know, uh, these are things that can be and have been gamed, right? By, uh, you know, and whether it's someone like uh, Vladislav Serkov in, in Russia, or, uh, you know, the, the, the equivalent in, in the United Kingdom, certain uh, Mr. Cummings, um, you know, the- He'd be very flattered. <laughs> I, I know he would. Um, uh, you know, I think the uh, the idea that um, I mean, in a way, I mean, this is what obviously there's been a lot of discourse about this. I think since 2016, that what one of the things that we saw was uh, the um, instrumentalization postmodern theory from the 80s and the 90s, which was very, you know, which used to, came out of very like leftist, Marxist um, university settings, you know, whether it's Derrida or Baudrillard or all these sort of people <clears throat> who were at that point, you know, um, talking about uh, deconstruction and re uh, relativity in relation in order to displace, um, you know, patriarchal um, uh, and other forms of like historically endowed um, power uh, and to, to displace those centers of power uh, towards something, you know, more uh, faithfully representative of a heterogeneous uh, world. Um, I think, you know, what we've seen in, since, since 2016 and, you know, here Ang Angela Nagel's book, Kill All Normies, I think is very good and very important. Uh, you know, the, 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 the way in which the right were, you know, <clears throat> I mean, basically the right are much better at making memes than the left. Uh, and so, the, you know, the meme, I think, has been a perfect uh, kind of vehicle through which this kind of infam um, consensus balkanization has, t has taken place. You know, to the to the point where you know something like the Pizza Gate. I mean, I'm very interested now in what's happening in the UK. Uh, this kind of um, neo luddite, um, you know, um, going to war with 5G, um, like the burning down of uh, of phone tra of, uh, transmitter posts. Um, you know, I think back to PizzaGate, um, again, a sort of 2016 phenomenon um, that weirdly brought together, you know, the performance artist Marina Abramovich and 
various other people from the cultural elite uh, into some like fantastical story that involved pedophilia and pizza. <laughs> um, and as you know, and it's as though the more ludicrous the 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 the, the narrative, um, you know, the more effective and authentic it, it seems to be to many many people. Um, and and I think this is only possible in, in an environment where there, you know, there, there seem to be no more objective, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, landing points that uh, somebody could say, well, hold on a minute, you know, uh, but look at this. You know, can we yeah. just can we agree on this? Like, can we at least agree on this? I feel like that that is that has gone, and um, and I and I think this is where yeah, and I think that's uh, you know for the for the for the sort of politically savvy and the politically kind of ingenious, it's a fantastic um, space <clears throat> in which to further you know whatever um, kind of extreme agenda you might have, which then takes us back to the extreme self. Uh, and one of the pages in the in the new book says, uh, it, you know, it just has the words, "The center is for losers." Um, and it feels now, uh, to me anyway, that um, you know, uh, having a voice from the center is uh, as good as having no voice at all today. Um, Centrist ad. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think that's. It certainly resonates very strongly with me, the sense that, mm -hmm. the, uh, that the right has picked... I mean, it resonates strongly with me, obviously, because I am a centrist dad. But, uh, but beyond that also, this idea that the right picked up all the tools of the left from the 1970s and reused them. Um, outrage as a political gesture, gaslighting as, uh, as, a, as a political move, um, very, very strong reliance on free speech, this whole free speech narrative that the, that, the, that the right has picked up, which used to be, of course, the, the, um, the, um, uh, mm -hmm. the terrain of the left. It's fascinating how these things have inversed. Um, it, it also strikes me, again, to your point of age of, of extremes and the extreme self, that we're in one of those peculiar periods where, the, the, where power and its opposite are both of the same bent. Mm -hmm. So um, all, all, all the governments of the Western world are now broadly right-wing. And mm -hmm. all opposition, all hard opposition um, of the most extreme kind is also right wing. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pache, Pache, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, um, mm -hmm. the real attack, the real contestation there seems to come from further right. So that's fascinating because, of course, it's also an echo of the 70s where it was mm -hmm. exactly the other way around. The left mm -hmm. was in and the hard left was, um, was opposition to that. Um, mm -hmm. You have a great friend um, who I have huge amounts of respect for called James Bridle, mm -hmm. who wrote uh, a book called The New Dark Age about technology. Mm -hmm. He talks to this very particular phenomenon of information surplus, which you've been mm -hmm. describing here, um, mm -hmm. um, as having two strong effects. Um, he calls it myth or silence. Um, and um, But broadly, in an age of information surplus where narratives are destroyed, people find it very difficult to anchor their sense of selves um, and they're bombarded with all sorts of contradictory content. Um, mm -hmm. There are two standard reactions. The first is apathy, silence. Mm -hmm. Just can't deal with it. No idea how it all fits together. Somebody else will figure it out. I give up. And the other is 
myth, which is to say conspiracy, which is mm-hmm. a desperate attempt to order the world around you. Um, and when there's that much information and that many conflicting contested narratives coming your way, mm-hmm. um, the only way, way to order the narrative is to go, is to, is to really bring big order to it. It's the Jews, mm-hmm. it's the aliens, it's something else. It's a, mm-hmm. a huge cosmic ordering process because it's just, because it's too complicated to deal with otherwise. Um, yeah. Both those approaches, both those responses, both myth and silence, both conspiracy and apathy are spectacular boons to populism um, mm-hmm. because populism uh, answers so easily um, th- those, uh, th- those desires. And that's precisely what we uh, are, are, trying to, are trying to work against um, as we think about the ways opinion, opinions work. Can I pick up one last, one last question for you? Um, but could, sorry, Turi, could I just sort please. of just um, address that? Because I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it seems to me as though, you know, one of the um, synonyms we could attach to the idea of the center would be something like nuance. And so if, you know, if the center is now for losers, it seems to me nuance is also now for news, for losers. And the thing about use nuance is that it is by definition gradiated and subtle and complex. And, um, and, and this, is, this is where, you know, my um, uh, optimism fuel tank um, runs very, very low because I firmly believe that you know, uh, uh, an ethically functioning society um, has to be able to comprehend and practice nuance. But me saying that, I think, makes me sound like uh, a kind of uh, a nostalgic from another planet. Um, because everything, it seems to me, is uh, stacked against that now. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the chapters in our, in the new book is called the comment section is the real world. And, you know, I say that, well, if you really want to know where the state of politics is today, just go to a news article and then scroll down to about the 30 second comment. And that's where you will, you will find it. Um, you know, most of us think of the comment section as a kind of, uh, surplus sewer, um, to, you know, real debate or to real discourse. But there was an interesting article that I read about teenagers and how they navigate a, a, a page, uh, a page on uh, online. Uh, and whereas those of us who are Gen X and above, you know, would, would move very uh, diligently from the top of, uh, of the page down to the bottom and maybe not even bother with a comment section because we know it's a kind of cesspit. Um, it was said that, well, the way in which, you know, a, young, a much younger person navigates the page is, is act literally the other way around. They will start in the comment section first. And they may not even bother to read the main article at all. Uh, and what they're doing and, and how they're navigating the, the comment section 
is not the way that we might, which is to move successively downwards and look at the argument, the counter-argument. Um, they're scanning it to look for those opinions expressed that verify or outrage the ones that they already possess. Um, and for me, that's actually a really uh, useful way of visualizing, I think, um, the kind of drastic shift. Um, uh, and, and, and for me, that, that's also a very acute picture of, you know, what is an opinion today? Or how do opinions get formed? How are they informed? Um, because it seems to me in many, many, many cases now, it's the, the raison d'etre is much more that you form your opinion first and then you seek uh, to have it um, validated in the media that you, you know, you then go and look at and read. Uh, and that seems to me a very, very different way of forming and uh, shaping opinion than would have been even just a few years ago. That's fascinating. I, I, I come at this with more optimism than mm -hmm. you. Um, again, data. Mm -hmm. the, the very worst sharers of fake news are um, uh, old Gen Xers and mm -hmm. boomers. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones who are brought up with um, a kind of deep faith that what they saw published had come from some place of authority. They're the ones who've been most um, blindsided by mm -hmm. uh, by the by the new technologies and the the the, the inherent um, untrustworthiness of those technologies. There, mm -hmm. and we're seeing it. We're seeing it with in coronavirus as well. It's my parents' generation that are sending through the mm -hmm. fake health warnings. So much mm -hmm. more dangerous for them, of course. But mm -hmm. um, but they're the ones in trouble there. Gen Zs, millennials. Uh, I think are, f are far smarter. They're mm. far, far more media savvy. They're far more media literate. Um, obviously, these are technologies which are theirs. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm, I feel in very good hands with the next generation mm -hmm. com coming up. And I wonder whether there's an element of youth being more opinionated because they can, because they're mm -hmm. somehow less in hock to the systems that. Um, that they've that they that they've brought up in, they've been brought up in. So I, I'm slightly more more positive there, mm -hmm. but, I, but I hear you. There are there is a very different no. Look, I I'm I know I I think that's an important point. I think I think those of us you know as, as Doug uh, uh, Doug uh, has um, said um, many Doug, times. Doug Copeland, yeah. Doug Copeland says you know I miss my pre-internet brain, um, but that you know for many. For many people now, uh, your kids, for example, um, there will have been no pre-internet brain. And I think the thing about the pre-internet brain, uh, and in that sense, you're absolutely right, that it's Gen X and above who have had to you know, adapt to, uh, and in many cases, I think, adapt kind of uh, miserably and with great kind of... Um, uh, you know, great kind of imperfection, it seems to me, to the new regime. Uh, I think if it's already in your, you know, if it's already in your system, um, 
you that there doesn't need to be that there doesn't basically need to be catch up it seems to me and hopefully you're also therefore born with um the necessary kind of tactics and strategies and like immunology even um that i think many of us that are older uh perhaps never you know in a sense never became inoculated with right so which means that mm, you know if something appears on your screen and on your feed and it doesn't matter what it is you just assume that it's true um whereas i think you're in that sense you're you're actually right that um the sort of the the tools of vigilance for you know the much younger generation should be and i hope will be uh a lot more um you know uh a lot sharper robust uh and intelligent than ours have been yeah no no that's hope um so back for my my last question to you really yeah. back to back to this this notion of the self mm-hmm. what well, i i have lived in a state of sort of permanent permanent anxiety i live in a state of permanent mild anxiety anyway but um but for the last few years very much in relationship in relation to artificial intelligence because mm-hmm. um because i think it it does rejig the space available for humans to be a cool thing to be unique mm-hmm. and um so where it hits me is the sense that um if we are thinking of everything computationally Mm-hmm. we're thinking if the great new technological advance is this capacity to to compute at giant scale to build a to build artificial intelligence and therefore reasoning r- rationalization um is no longer purely the preserve of humans the thing which mm-hmm. differentiates us from animals the things which the thing which differentiates us from everything else it was reason which um which gave us our sense of uniqueness we don't have that anymore i keep on wondering whether the rise of ai changes um the space that reduces the space that we have to be ourselves in that sense so and whether therefore if ration if the capacity to reason if the capacity to 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 work through arguments ideas etc rationally stops becoming the thing which makes us who we are mm-hmm. because ai does it better does that push us towards something else do we then start having to define ourselves in different ways this is so it makes it makes me ask does our obsession with the authentic with feeling with subjective mm-hmm. experience um with emotion with outrage etc is that actually accelerated by this counter story which is the rise of general artificial intelligence that actually the mm-hmm. only thing that humans get to do um unlike anybody else and like anything else is feel do you, do you, do you, so i'm i'm wondering whether this we 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 sort of we're edging towards a consciously we're edging towards a sort of a post enlightenment sense of who we are and of where our values are mm-hmm. now i think that that's that's a kind of it's a really interesting you know like schema i would um you know uh, i'm very you know i think you sort of uh started out sort of saying that uh you know there's been very little really genuinely you know cogent things written about technology um uh and and how you know technology is changing us and 
our relationship to each other. I would, I would, I would uh, apply that to the cultural role of AI. Um, I think most of the things that have been said about it um, are, you know, uh, are crass, callous, and wishful at best. Um, and and actually, most of it, it seems to me, comes from you know, it comes from uh, from fiction, from science fiction, um, uh, a sort of strange, uh, like fatalistic wish to want to be starring in uh, some of our, you know, best love film nightmares. Mm, you'll know this. I know this. That um, you know, most forms of uh, what we call AI today are narrow. Uh, we are nowhere close to something called general uh, artificial intelligence, um, and most of it is really, uh, you know, is machine learning. It's very, you know, it's very efficient forms of computational processing. Um, you know, and one of my favorite—I can't remember who said this—but uh, you know, favorite ways of thinking about this is, you know. A computer will be able, probably be able to beat you at chess, but it doesn't know what chess is. So, you know, you ask, you, you could ask it and it would have no idea, but it would beat the pants off you, of course. Um, so th I think these, the question of, you know, of why, of how, of how all of these things are sort of situated and nest, nest within each other in these kind of complex forms of, you know, sociological, philosophical, ethical, emotional nuance, to use that word again. Oh my God, I think we we are light years away from that, from, from you know, computers or, or AI doing that. Why would we want them to do that uh, at all, seems to me uh, also a kind of um, important question to ask. Um, the best, uh, but I do, I do see a positive kind of aspect to um, uh, to the you know many of these kind of quests uh, and questions that are coming up because uh, I think the you know you can't think of artificial intelligence without thinking about non-artificial intelligence, i.e., your own intelligence, or you know, and so the question it those questions that you uh, about values about where we get our sense of meaning. I, I agree. I mean, if, if AI can act as a kind of, um, you know, like a sort of critical mirror that forces us to ask uh, the important questions about ourselves, then I think this is one of its, you know, greatest, to use James's phrase here, greatest like surplus values that maybe we didn't intend for it to have. But I think it has to have. And here I, I would just add that it's, there's, there's a paper, one of our guests at the Global Art Forum, which is a, a summit that I, I put together each year. Uh, uh, one year we did a, uh, an edition which was called I Am Not a Robot. So it was looking at questions of automation. Um, uh, we invited a, a Spanish uh, philosopher and he'd written a paper about, uh, you know, uh, what would happen if uh, if you based AI around Eastern conceptions of mind? 
because a lot of you know what we again we take for granted uh, that when we talk about intelligence that we're talking about models of mind, but those models are often assumed to be Western, uh, you know, post-Cartesian ideas of 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 of, of the mind. Now, you know, Shintoism, um, uh, Buddhism have very, very different notions of what the what the mind's relationship is to the body, uh, what the mind's relationship to, is to other minds, and so you know, if you were to start building uh, AI around those concepts, then you would get something very, very different. It seems to me about than what you than what you get from a kind of Anglo-Saxon tradition at post like Marvin Minsky in the fifties. Um, but again, I think maybe the most interesting thing there is not whether or not we can build an AI uh, that somehow mimics what it is to be a Buddhist or a Shintoist, but rather that we bring to the surface the fact that there are different conceptions of mind uh, and that those different conceptions of mind lead to different kinds of ethics, different relationships to bodies, to flesh, to matter, to material, to history, and to the future, right? So, so. Uh, to me, this this is where I, you know, I I think a, our our search for or our investigation with with artificial hopefully uh, will uh, could bring us uh, a new kind of enlightenment. That is much much more optimistic than mine, which was my my, my view here, which is that our our obsession with. Um, with artificial intelligence, which, as you say, we're, we're as, as many miles as we are from a generalized artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. just this the conception that a machine can do this reasoning would back us into a corner where all we can do is feeling, and that's uh -huh. very, very frightening. But I think your your version of this, which is that actually it, that, that um, being able to perform this great, the, the height of human capacity, which is reasoning at a scale infinitely mm -hmm. superior, humans can do forces us to think about who we are at a slightly broader level that that's a beautiful thing um it's also a beautiful thing to end on shimon thanks so much for um for talking to us today this has been fascinating um and um as soon as your book is out we will we'll 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 push this wonderful thank you so much Tori. it's a great to talk always great to talk to you That was the Palia podcast from palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.